Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Good morning and welcome to The Last Word. My name is Johnny and I'm joined here with JD. Good to be here this morning. And Cameron. Awesome to be with you guys. <laughs> awesome. It's so good to be here with y'all. Um, so hopping right into it, JD, on Thursday, the theme of your entire message was that we are created in God's image. And it can be easy to understand the part that God created us, but what about the image of God? What does that look like? Like what qualities about his image are we created with? That is a great question. Heavy hitter right off the top, Johnny. (laughs) I think that that's the uniqueness of each and every human being from uh, our personalities to our giftings to our gender. All of that is like a unique part of the image of God. Um, And I think that that's an important thing to see is that, yes, we're created. We can see similarities between people, but our uniqueness and what makes us Uh, really incredible is the image of God that is expressed uniquely in Mm -hmm. each and every person. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, I actually, when JD was speaking on Thursday, made me think of a book that I've read recently and it's called Captivating and it's more Mm -hmm. geared towards women, but it can, there's a men's book like with the same theme too, but um, essentially, like the book talks about how women have a lot of qualities that reflect God because we're made in his image. And one thing that the book talks about is how women have a heart that longs and that longs to love people and care and care so deeply. And one thing the book talks about is how that's a reflection of God mm-hmm. and how we long, God longs like even more. Um, and one thing it also says in the book that I think is really cool, how uh, like the saying that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts God has an us-shaped hole in his heart. And so I think it's just cool to see like the qualities that each of us have uniquely, but also what we have like as a whole that reflects his character, like how we long and how we long to love people. Yeah, I love that that whole thought of how we long to love people. And if you thought that first one was deep, I got two more for you. <laughs> so this next one is, say I'm listening to this podcast and what about the next time that something terrible happens, like my girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with me, like parents kick you out of the house, you lose your job, something terrible, the list goes on and on. And I'm looking in the mirror and I struggle to see the image of God in myself. So we can sit here and say like, oh, just remember that you're creating God's image. But what are some practical things we can do to help ground us back to that truth that we are still created in the image of God? Well, I think that the first thing that we have to recognize is that no matter how much like the image of God has been marred by sin or illness or weakness or external circumstances or any of those things, like we still bear the status of being made in God's image. Yes, that is like still kind of like abstract in all reality. But I think that what we see is really, that's really important is that our identity is not defined by our own fleeting and insecure definitions of ourself. Mm. And that's what we have to come back to. It's like, no matter what my external circumstances tell me, my circumstances not do not define me as a human being. And so I have to come back to this truth that I am made in God's image mm. and others are made in God's image. And so for us personally, our identity then becomes rooted in that. And for me, I think it comes back to sometimes you just have to say that out loud to yourself. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, I I have to see that uh, when I'm struggling with sin and when I screw up and I'm upset and I feel ashamed and I feel guilty, I have to come back to, 
yes, all of those things like that does move us towards repentance. It does move us towards making progress in, in those battles with sin, but that doesn't change my identity. I am still a child of God and my circumstances, my actions, all of those things, my behaviors do not change that fact. Preach. You should be a pastor. So yeah, you should do that. <laughs> um, one thing that I try to always think about for myself personally is that when I have feelings like that, feelings are very real, but feelings aren't always reliable. But Ooh. one thing that is reliable and that will always be reliable is God's word. And black and white ink on paper, it says that we're created in his image. And that's something I can always hold fast to. And also, in addition to that, what JD said at Crosstalk on Thursday about God created us. Um, and defined our worth before sin even came into the world because he wanted him to be able to define us mm-hmm. and not other human beings. And I think that can ap- apply to ourselves too. Um, I think God defined us so that when we're feeling down and when we're feeling those feelings of not being loved and whatever the case may be, God has already defined us. And so mm-hmm. we can't define ourselves because the ultimate creator and definer has. Man, y'all are dropping some fire this morning. <laughs> those are so great. Um, yeah, I think that for me, I was just sitting here thinking, like, I honestly didn't even think of an answer until like just now, but the, maybe it helps to try to recognize the parts that you're looking at that are not God's image. And maybe just like identifying that like false reality that you're believing. And maybe that'll help ground you to being like, okay, that is the false reality. And now let me look at the qualities of God, like how y'all answered in the first uh, question and just like reiterate those onto myself. So Last question is uh, speaking on to like how we apply this to our thoughts with other people. Mm-hmm. So say I'm struggling with judging others, whether they're acting out of line and we feel justified in it, or whether we're just looking at random people and immediately having a judgy thought. Uh, what are practical ways that we can turn that into remembering that they are created in the image of God? What we talked about on Thursday is kind of a very short sentence, and it actually has been, I think it was, I can't remember who said it on a Sunday morning. Do you guys remember whether it was Sean or Jose? I don't remember. I, I want to say it was Sean, I but I, it was Sean, yeah, but I, I haven't gone back to look and yeah. to find it. Yeah. Is, but his saying was replace judgment with curiosity. Mm. Replace judgment with curiosity. And I think that that really is key for us. When our first instinct is to judge somebody by the the way that they're dressed, by something that they say, by a belief that they hold, all an action that they take towards somebody else, we immediately jump to judgment. And we have to replace that with curiosity because we know that, quite frankly, there's something behind those thought, those actions. There's something behind those words. There's something behind those. And so for us, when we say, tell me more, it places us in a position of like active listening, whether that is uh, paying more attention to the things that they say and the, th- the ways that they act, and maybe we can pick up why they might act that way, or in personal conversation, asking questions, learning to be compassionate and empathetic so that we understand their story. Uh, our beliefs and our thoughts, our actions, our words are conditioned by our own personal experience. And so the more that we replace judgment with curiosity, the more we hear people's stories, Mm -hmm. it makes them human again. And when they're human, we see them as a person created in God's image, which is deserving of love and respect and the same grace, Mm. quite frankly, that has been shown to us by Jesus. And so when we go there, it's very easy for us to put off that judgment and put on curiosity and the reality is when we get into that space, we really become the hands and feet of Jesus acting like him Mm -hmm. and listening like him and loving like him. Absolutely. 
I think we have this preconceived notion um, as human beings that we're loved with conditions and with other human beings. Most of the time that's true. <laughs> we're loved conditionally. Yeah. But how awesome would it be if the church and if we were a community who loved people unconditionally and we were marked by that? And a great way to do that is just to listen to people. Um, at community group last night, we were even talking about just the best way to feel loved and to create a safe space is just to listen. Um, mm-hmm. And curiosity, tell me more, is the best way to, to do that. And on top of that, I think it creates a space to let people know that I love you without conditions. Just tell me more. My love mm-hmm. for you isn't contingent on if you have the right answers or not, yeah. or if you have the right questions, or if you have the right thought processes. My love for you is just because you're an image bearer and I love you. And I want to hear everything about what's going on in your life, what makes you who Mm -hmm. you are and where you are in your life right now. And that's it. Yeah, good stuff. And JD, you told Cam and I one time when we were reading a book on the author was of another denomination and you told us to take what we think we can like still learn out of it. Like even if it's someone with totally opposing like viewpoints, no matter what it is, try to still learn at least one thing from that. Mm-hmm. And that has stuck with me and it's changed my view whenever I'm like judging someone and I feel justified in that, that like grounds me in that truth that like they still have something to give because they're just as worthy and God and Jesus died for them just as much as he died for me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I hope that we can be reminded of that truth and that we can apply it to others. JD, yeah. would you like to give the last word? Yeah, absolutely. We love to judge people by their worst day or their worst moment or their worst action or their worst saying. And the reality is a person is far more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's a really yeah. cool thing that we see when we see that all human beings are created in God's image. So this upcoming week, we're going to kind of close out this series. And we've talked about how God created, how he created it good, how we are created in his image. And now we get to talk about the problem of brokenness. If we turn the page, we get into Genesis chapter three, we see that there's an issue and that issue is sin that now pervades all of life. And so we'll talk about how that comes to pass and we'll talk about some of the implications of that as we now walk in a broken and fallen world. So we'll see you guys on Thursday night. Here for the first time or the first time in a long time, my name is JD. I have the privilege of pastoring this community that we call Crosstalk. And I'm so excited that you guys are here. You guys are hopping in at a really fun time for us. So far this semester, we've been walking through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. First three chapters. And if you guys have ever opened a Bible, maybe you guys have never done that before. The first three chapters are about creation. And what we've been doing is we're pulling out certain theological concepts, certain ideas, and we're using them as tools that we can then put in our theological tool belt, meaning that when we walk back out into the world and we encounter all of these different things, these are the things that really begin to form our worldview. They they help us to understand how we are called to act and to respond to the things that are going on in the world around us. Now, last week, we talked about how God created the earth and everything in it and that he saw it was good. That everything that he had created here in the world was good. Six times, God saw what he had made and he calls it good in Genesis chapter one. Then God creates human beings. And right there at the end of Genesis one, God looks back. He steps back and he looks at all that he has created and he calls it very good. All that he has created, human beings included, is called very good. 
And when God created human beings, he gives them this unique task. And this task is to be his representatives here on earth, to be his representatives here on earth. He gives human beings dominion over creation, which Genesis chapter two then tells us that he places human beings in a garden in Eden to work it and to keep it. Our our call, what we are supposed to do is to work and to keep God's good creation. The implication of that is that we are individually, personally responsible for how we take care of God's creation around us. And the key thing to notice in Genesis 1 and 2, really, is that evil was not a part of the original creation in any way. Evil was not a part of this original creation. Dominion, therefore, is not the authority to work against God's creation through perpetuating acts that destroy it. Rather, dominion is the ability to work for it, to bring about the flourishing of life in God's good creation. Now, according to Genesis, humanity's inability to fulfill this God-given responsibility to rule over creation has some pretty serious consequences. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters the world and evil right alongside it. Adam and Eve reject God and his plan for them, and they take this anti-God posture and attitude. And we see the effects of sin and evil play out every day in our lives, both in our relationships with other human beings, but also in the world around us. Human beings have perpetuated harm and violence against God's good creation. We have destroyed creation through our exploitation of it. Now, how many of you guys last week either found an old half-dead plant in your apartment or you guys went and you guys bought a new plant? Yes, that is awesome. That is so awesome. Some of us got dogs. Fair enough. (laughs) That's awesome. But what what we see when we take care of a plant, when we take care of a pet, when we take care of a new dog is this demonstration in a very tangible way of the kind of care that we, are co- that we are called to embody for all of God's good creation. It's on a very micro level that when we water a plant, when we make sure that it has enough light, when we take care of our dog, when we feed it, when we take it outside, we understand and we embody this realization that God calls us to be stewards of his good creation. Now, human beings have not only destroyed creation, but we have perpetuated evil and violence against one another. Ever since Cain kills Abel, we see this violence taking place between human beings. And that's what we're gonna talk about this week. Kind of the big like meta question that we're gonna be answering this week is, how does understanding other human beings as created in the image of God change the way that we treat them? When we see and we recognize that human beings are created in the image of God, how does that change the way in which we treat them? Now, to answer that question, we have to start a little bit smaller. We have to define something. What is humanity? What what are human beings? Well, a biologist might say that it is just a form of life that consists of these scientific reactions and these other natural processes. 
A sociologist might say that human beings are inherently social, that we thrive in community and relationship with one another. A psychologist might point to the fact that human beings are unique and that they possess a conscience, that they're aware of themselves and others. A linguist might point to humanity's unique form of complex and meaningful conversation, our ability to communicate with one another. A philosopher might argue that intellect, rationality, our ability to comprehend complex thought is what makes us unique from all other things. Even a religious scholar might point to our ability to comprehend the spiritual dimension of things, which sets us apart from all other created things. Now, all of these things are helpful things for us. There's nothing bad about these definitions of humanity, but Christian theology insists that the question of human identity cannot be resolved in this way. That none of these answer the central question of what are human beings. Our identity as people must be anchored in something greater than ourselves, namely God, the creator of the universe. We can only resolve this question in our relationship to God. So now we talk about this at a, at a broad scale where it's what are, what are human beings? Now let's make this very, very specific. Who are you? Who are you? How would you define yourself? If you and I were to sit down next week and have coffee and I said, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What would you say? In the process of identity formation as people, we tend to associate ourselves with things which we claim some similarity. So our age, our gender, um, our relationships, our profession, our possessions, our politics, all of these things are ways in which we identify ourselves. Now in America, very specifically, we tend to articulate our identity in terms of two things. First of which is our profession, and the second of which is our possessions. Oftentimes when you ask somebody, who are you? They're gonna tell you what they do, and they're gonna tell you all the cool stuff that they have. That's the way that the world, specifically our American culture, defines our identity. What do you do and what do you have? And Christian thinking, however, does not reduce our human identity to these dimensions. It doesn't reduce our identity to what we do and what we have. Instead, theologically speaking, a human being is first and foremost a being created to be in relationship with God. You are a human being that is created to be in relationship with God. Only this reality truly secures our identity as people. Everything else is fleeting. Our possessions go away. Our professions go away. Our age changes. All of these things. But it's only when we begin to understand ourselves as a human being created to be in relationship with God that we begin to know who we are at the core of our very being. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor in the 1930s and 40s. And he was a, an incredibly, incredibly brave man. He has an, an, there's an incredible autobiography out about him, but he stood up in Germany against Nazi Germany, which ultimately ended up costing him his life. 
And he once expressed this truth about human identity in a poem he wrote while imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And I want to read it for you guys. The main central idea of this as we begin to read is he is answering the question, who am I? Who am I? It's going to be up on the screen behind me if you guys want to follow along. It says, who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as thought it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of my misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know, restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woe-begone weakling or something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. For most of this poem, Bonhoeffer alternates in his reflection between how others perceive him him, as strong, as courageous, as calm, as full of faith in spite of his almost certain death and how he perceives himself in his own situation as weak and restless and frightened and doubting. He then ponders who he really is. Am I that person? Or am I this person? Am I what others say I am? Am I what I think about myself? And what's really haunting about this poem for me is that it has no conclusion. It has no conclusion. He says, whatever he is, he belongs to God. Whatever he is, he belongs to God. And what Bonhoeffer suggests in this poem is that the fundamental identity of human beings can only be understood in relation to God, the creator. This assertion is what we find when we look into the biblical text. And so I want you guys, if you guys will follow along with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 again. We're going to start in Genesis 1.26. I know we've been here every week, but this passage really is a foundational piece for us to understand who God is and who we were created to be. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. 
Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Here in Genesis 1, what we see is is called the Imago Dei. Now, this is just a fancy Latin word meaning the image of God. What we see here is the image of God. And this is the basic affirmation that humanity is created in the image and in the likeness of God. That's what 126 says. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, which means that our sameness identifies us as people not by our own fleeting and insecure definitions of ourself, but instead identifies us inextricably with God. That our identity is wrapped up in who God is. The affirmation that humanity is created in the image of God is the most fundamental theological category for understanding who we are as human beings. Humanity made in God's image reflects and represents God in creation in a special way. Our presence declares the earth to be God's kingdom. We are to be his representatives here on earth. That's why we see in the Ten Commandments the command to not make a carved image, an idol, a physical representation or likeness of God because God already has an image, a divine likeness here on earth, and it is us. We are God's image, his divine likeness here on earth. That is an earth-shattering realization. Okay, so we have this very foundational truth for us, and it's fairly straightforward, especially compared to the last couple of weeks. It's very simply that humanity is made in the image of God. And the question begins, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we are made in the image of God? Because at the beginning of the world, God defined our worth, your worth and my worth, so that sinful human beings wouldn't be responsible for determining the value of your life and my life. At the beginning of the world, God determined our worth so that human beings wouldn't determine the value of a human life. I was reading a pastor who said it this way this week. He said, every single human being, no matter how much the image of God has been marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, still has the status of being made in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and the respect that is due to God's image bearer. No matter how much the image of God has been marred in our life by our own sin, by the stuff that happens to us, by illness, by disability, by all of these things, we still have the status of being made in God's image. And that means that we are to be treated with the same dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. And this profoundly affects the way that we think about and participate in the treatment of other human beings. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. 
It means that elderly people, children yet unborn, and even those who have done horrific things deserve protection and honor as human beings made in God's image. This informs the way we are to think about issues of social justice and slavery and violent crime and capital punishment because all of these things are Imago Dei issues because they deal with the treatment of those who are made in the image of God. When we look at others as being created in God's image, that changes the way that we understand the value of a human life. From conception to death, we affirm that humans have dignity, they have eminence, and they have significance because they are made in God's image. To put it as simply as I possibly can, there's no way that you can look into the scriptures and hold a position of supremacy over another person. You can't find anywhere in the scriptures that you are better than someone else. Can someone out there make it up and say it's Christian? Sure they can, but they definitely can't find it here in the scriptures. And it makes me so angry when I see someone who calls themselves a Christian go out and treat someone like they are lesser than because of the color of their skin, their gender, or their race. Because there's nowhere in Scripture that they could find that. And how do I know that's true? I turn right here, the first page of the Bible. The first page of the Bible, and it tells me that every person is created in the image of God. And as a result, they have the same worth and value that I do. So how does this work itself out in the world? Well, let's start with one of the most pertinent examples. Christians in this country have been praying for 50 years, for 50 years for the protection of unborn human life, based on this Imago Dei doctrine, that we have a responsibility to protect those who are made in the image of God, especially those who cannot protect themselves. And this year, those who've been praying about that, for some of them for their entire lifetime, got what they've been praying for. Now, here is the reality. The world is now watching to see how the church in America responds. They're saying, show me. What are you going to do about it? You've been asking for this. You've been praying for this for 50 years and you just got what you asked for. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you gonna prove in your everyday actions that you truly believe that every life has dignity and value? Will you provide the necessary resources for a mother to have a healthy and safe pregnancy? Are you gonna show up for this child once it's born and provide the resources and care that it needs to thrive and to grow? Are you going to come alongside this courageous mother in parenting that child? Are you going to support those families who make the life-changing decision to adopt children? The world is saying, show me that you believe that every life has inherent meaning and value. Prove it in everyday actions that it's not just what you say, but it's actually how you live. Now, I want to be abundantly clear that this Imago Dei doctrine does not stop here. It does not stop here. This is just the most highly politicized example right now. 
But this is a very small part of what is a very robust Imago Dei theology. It encompasses all of human life from conception to death. If we say that we recognize the value and dignity of every person, we have to put that into action. It doesn't matter what we say we believe if we are not living this out in the reality of everyday life. Do you guys know that the idea of human rights came from Christian reflection on this core belief that God created all human beings in his image? This is the basis for human rights all over the world comes back to this doctrine, which means that this doctrine needs to affect how we fight for justice for people of color who experience systemic racism and oppression in this country and all throughout the world. It changes how we participate in fighting for equal pay and opportunity for women in the workplace. It changes the way that we actively work to alleviate the suffering of the poor and the marginalized in our communities. It necessitates a change in how we think about violent crime and capital punishment in this country. It changes how we think about gun violence and gun control. The way that we participate in the foster care system. There are 50 million people in the world right now who are enslaved. More than at any other point in human history. And the image of God in every person creates the impetus for us to fight against slavery and human trafficking all over the world. It asks us to actively participate in the care for the refugee who is fleeing violence in their country of origin. Now, you might be sitting in your seat and you might be a little bit uncomfortable right now. And I want to acknowledge that because I feel uncomfortable too. And I think that the text is telling us that we should feel uncomfortable. Because that helps us to realize that there is some work left to do for the people of God to enter into these spaces and to care and to bring justice and mercy into this world so that every human being created in the image of God has equal rights and dignity and value. The issue is these things become politicized. And in reality, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this isn't political, it's biblical. If we look into the text, what we see is that we're called to care for the poor and the sick and the needy, the marginalized, the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants. All of these things are biblical things. What did we see Jesus doing? He's caring primarily for those people. And this doctrine calls us to participate in these issues because we believe that every human life has meaning and value because it was created in the image of God. It calls us to the work of justice and mercy in the world. And it dramatically affects how I stand up, how we stand up for the cause of justice for all people, how we fight for the equal value of, ev of every human being especially those who can't fight for themselves. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, and there's a quote that comes out of that letter that really has been sticking with me. He says, human progress never rolls on the wheels of inevitability, meaning that 
We're not going to make progress in any of these things if we just sit back and wait for them to happen. It doesn't happen automatically. He says it comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. The human progress comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. The time is always right to do right. Now, all of this is big picture stuff. It exists on this very macro level. We just talked about most of the problems in the world. And the question is, what about you and me? Today, like here on the Texas State campus, living in San Marcos, how does this affect my life daily? Well, for some of us, we're going to find that we're passionate about one of these causes. We might feel called to dedicate our time and our passion and our resources towards acts of justice for all people in one of these ways. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. If there's something that stirs in your heart and you find something that you have to be involved in, he wants to use us to be agents of change, to be agents of justice in the world. And I want to be the first person to champion you as you go out and you do that work. But for most of us, we're just going to keep going to class. And we're going to go to work and we're going to go to community group and we're going to go out to eat. Well, seeing others as made in the image of God dramatically affects how we view and interact with the people that we see every day. Not the people a couple of cities over and not the people in the world, but the people that we literally see and interact with on an everyday basis. The people that we walk by, the people that we judge, the people that we're rude to, the people that we're kind to. And it gives us more grace and love for the people around us who are hard to love because when we see them as made in the image of God, we see them as a person first, who has inherent value and meaning and dignity and deserves respect. And we don't see sin. We don't see political view. We don't see the thing that just frustrated us. We don't see the bad service we just got or the person who just cut us off in their car. But we see them as a human being who has inherent value and meaning. And when we begin to embody this theology, it ultimately replaces judgment with curiosity. And that has to be the goal in our life. When the first thing that comes to mind for most of us is going to be something judgmental. And when that happens, we have to learn to replace that with curiosity because it makes that person human again. When we walk away from judgment and we lean into curiosity, we now see them as a person. Now, I want you guys to think of a person in your life that you really, really struggle with. I mean, really struggle with. Could be a coworker, it could be a classmate, it could be a professor, could be a family member, could be your boss, or the person who cut you off in traffic, or, the, or somebody who has very different political views than you do. And the next time you want to get all fired up about something that they say or they do, I want you to use a very simple phrase. Whether it's out loud or whether it's in your head, I just want you guys to say, tell me more. 
Tell me more. It's just a three-word sentence. This demonstrates for us what's called just active listening. It engages us and it places us in a position of humility to understand what's going on, to bring about compassion and empathy for the person that we're sitting in front of or the person who just cut you off or the person who just frustrated you by something that they said. It puts us in a position of compassion and empathy to want to understand more. That phrase moves us from judgment to curiosity because it opens us up to learn more about them, to consider their perspective, to hear more of their story and their background and their experiences, to understand why they think and they act the way that they do. And what we, what we do when we begin to see them as people made in the image of God is this opens us up to love them in ordinary and simple but profound ways. I've told you guys this a lot of times. There was a study done years ago that surveyed all of these people in America. The top two things that came up to describe Christians were judgmental and hypocritical. Judgmental and hypocritical. And we need to replace that judgment with curiosity because curiosity leads to empathy and compassion, which ultimately leads to understanding. And although we might not agree, we might get frustrated, we see the inherent value in what that person brings to the table as a person created in the image of God. What would it look like if followers of Jesus throughout the world from all different backgrounds as a household of faith were known for their work of justice and mercy? What would the world say of us as followers of Jesus? What would it look like if Christians acted as neighbors, simply acted as neighbors who saw vulnerable people in light of the Imago Dei? Seeing each and every person as made in the image of God has the ability to profoundly impact the world in really, really important ways, both at a macro level and at a micro level on the level of individual human relationship, but also in grand societal change, as we recognize the value of every person and it brings about God's kingdom here on earth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Jesus, that when we open your word, whether it confronts us, whether it's something that's comforting, Jesus, whether it really makes us uncomfortable, we thank you that your word does not come back void. And so, Father, as, as we process, as we think about these things, Lord, we pray that you would lead us into deeper understanding, Father. May you lead us into a deeper understanding of who you are and who you've created human beings to be, people created in your image. And God, as we both understand that personally, may it be lived out socially. Might the image of God become something that's so deeply ingrained in us that we see the inherent value in all human beings, especially those who frustrate us, especially those who disagree with us, especially those who are nothing like us. God, we ask that you would teach us what it means to replace our judgment with curiosity, to demonstrate great love in ordinary and simple acts of mercy and justice in the lives of the people around us. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you that you are doing something mighty in this world. We thank you that we get to be a part of it as those created in your image and that you choose to use us as broken and sinful human beings to demonstrate your great love to a hurting and broken world. And so Jesus, we pray for that world, Lord. We pray for your justice and your mercy to bring about great change, Lord, that we might begin to see the inherent value in every human life. We pray this all in your name.